Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolfe and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Glad you've tuned in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Associate Professor Liz Forbat about the philosophy of grief. Welcome to the program. Hi, Beth. Thank you. Could you tell us a bit a bit about yourself? Yeah, so um, I'm based in the UK at University of Stirling in Scotland. Um, I'm a psychologist, so a research psychologist, which means that I spend most of my time working in university doing research around serious illness. And I'm also a family psychotherapist, which means that I have a kind of side hustle um, doing some therapeutic work with people who are also uh, impacted by serious illness. And I've been doing that for about 20 years as a researcher, about 10 years as a therapist, um, and just really interested in the experience of serious illness from all, all angles, really. So the academic stuff, I don't know how much you're you're familiar with the academic terrain, but it can take like 15, 20 years to get academic research um, funded, conducted, disseminated, and then actually into practice, which is obviously a really long time. So the therapeutic work means that actually you can do something in the space of 50 minutes and you can start to see change. So that's why I really like the two bits of that uh, of my identity and my work role, because it just enables me to balance the sort of short and long term impact. You'd have to be fairly patient, would you, wouldn't you, doing the, the long term sort of research? Yeah, yeah. Lots of resilience, very patient. But I think, you know, as long as you understand the kind of long game, um, that's all right. It's tricky working with clinicians. So, you know, I do a lot of collaboration with people working in hospitals, hospices and so on. And I think they're used to a much faster turnaround of um, bright idea into research and then changing practice. So I think sometimes that's just about helping people understand the, the time frames. So what was it that inspired your interest in grief? Well, so I'm, I'm interested in all sorts of things. Uh, one of my downfalls, maybe. But, but because I'm quite interested in serious illness, and serious illness tends to go hand in hand with grief, bereavement, death, dying. So it's all kind of wrapped up in those kind of interests, really. So thinking about palliative care, <clears throat> where, you know, which is a setting that I've worked in for a long time, the, the idea of palliative care is really meant to be from the point of diagnosis of some condition that people won't get better from right through into the bereavement phase. And I know that's not really how people think of palliative care. They think of it as being maybe the last few days or weeks of life. But ideally, palliative care stretches that entire range from diagnosis into bereavement. And I think it's really important that that bereavement bit doesn't get lost 
um, which is sometimes a risk. So I guess I'm quite interested in attending to that. Um, there's an Australian clinician called David Kissane, who um, was based for a, for a while in New York. And I went to visit him there. He was doing some work around bereavement and family-focused grief therapy. Um, he was running a big, really interesting trial in New York. And I went to visit him and that really consolidated my interest in supporting families and thinking about, you know, what's going on for families from that point of diagnosis right through into the bereavement phase. So could you um, tell us about the different stages of grief? Yeah, so the, the main thing to tell you about the stages of grief is that there aren't really stages. So, um, so I can tell you about what people think the stages of grief are, and then we can maybe unpick that a bit. So, um, yeah, so, so this woman, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, um, was writing in the 1960s about grief. And she talked about how people go through these five main stages. Um, and, you know, somebody dies and then there's initially denial, then there's anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, those kind of ideas. And I think that's typically what people think of as stages of grief. And maybe that's what you had in mind, Beth. Um, but but actually, when you when you go back to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work, she she'd never really said, oh, this is what people do and it's linear and you start at this point and then you come out at acceptance and then it's all more or less resolved. She was just saying this is this is some of the things um, that people experience and it's it's more about how people cope with it rather than how they grieve. And I think there's a really clear understanding now that it's not linear and actually you can hop between all sorts of different grief responses and grief reactions uh, you know, after the death of somebody or after some other bereavement or loss. So, yeah, so I think I think it's really important to spend some time kind of unpicking that um, as as a kind of received truth, if you like. So, um, what is the so-called hierarchy of grief? Well, so hierarchy of grief. So this kind of relates to the idea that some griefs are awarded more status than others. So, um, you know, the, the idea that if your goldfish dies, that's less, less impactful than if your spouse dies. And I think, you know, that's kind of intuitive and there's very few adults would argue with that. Although if you ask a four-year-old, they, they might have very different ideas but it's based on the idea that actually the rather than there being a binary do you grieve or do you not and is it um legitimate or is it not it's like there's this hierarchy where some relationships and some deaths and loss are considered like more uh more important or more impactful than other ones um so you know i think it's there's this idea that um within the hierarchy there's a way a kind of socially understood or accepted uh idea about whose whose grief is more impactful than anybody else's there's some research done some researchers had um developed some scenarios and then got participants to kind of rank you know which would be the most 
devastating and death of a spouse or a first degree relative or a sort of consanguine, you know, a, a shared blood kind of relative um, is much more impactful and devastating, if you like, than, than other kinds of um, bereavement and loss. So it, it kind of stems from that. So the work that I've been doing around hierarchies of grief was looking at um, the, the loss and death of a friend. So if you think about that idea that, um, yeah, a, a spouse uh, might be, or a death of a child might be one of the most uh, uh, highest up on the hierarchy, the most impactful and most devastating. Where does that leave us when we're thinking about the death of a friend? Um, and, and actually there's been very little work done on death of friends. Um, if you're looking at the sort of social science philosophy type literature, um, and I think that's because of this implicit hierarchy that people really just focused on first degree relatives, really. Um, but that strikes me as being a bit strange. I feel like I want to really ask you about, about what your thoughts are about the hierarchy. Is that something that you think people carry around with them, a sense that there's one grief um, that seems more, more important than another? Yeah, I definitely think that there is. And if, if you say to somebody, especially an acquaintance, oh, my mother died or, you know, my daughter died, you would get quite a reaction from them and quite a lot of sympathy. You know, most of the time they'd know the right things to say. But um, if you say to somebody, a friend of mine has died, and especially if it's not sort of a very close friend either, and it, and it doesn't really matter that it's not a close friend. It's, it is a friend. And I don't think it is actually given um, really enough status. And especially when you consider that friends are the family we choose ourselves. Mm. A lot of people really don't have very much to do with their biological family. And because if you look at it objectively, people are actually you know, thrown into this situation where they're born into a family and they might share a few common genes with someone. But a lot of the time, that's where it ends. Mm -hmm. When you look at the relationships between people and their family members, but then you look at, you look at how we choose our friends. They're like-minded people and they might like the same music. They might, you know, go into the same politics. And we really enjoy friends' company. So, I mean, I think if most people had a little chalkboard and you said to them, how much time have you spent with your family in the last year? And they'd write it down, how many hours? And how much time have you spent with your friends? I mean, it would just be multiple times mm -hmm. more than the, what they've spent with their family. Yeah. So, so I and think that's yet, <laughs> Yeah. And yet all of our services are kind of really geared up for, for families and our social response is around that, isn't it? And you think about, well, if you look at employers um, and, you know, HR policies and, you know, that kind of thing, then actually quite often they'll say, you know, time off for um, the bereavement of a dependent or time off for bereavement of a relative. And actually that idea that, yeah, fam friends the family that you choose, and actually the closeness can be much more profound than something that we're biologically related to, uh, just doesn't seem to be attended to. 
also the the loss of a pet as well. I think that's that's becoming it, it, it's um, carrying more weight lately, and I I think that's that's because people are actually um, uh, just generally placing a higher status on people having pets and mm -hmm. the way they care for their pets. It, it's not like you just get a cat or a dog and lock it out in the backyard anymore. And I, I think that times are changing with with that. And look, it, it mightn't be too long or we might, might be able to have, you know, we have carers days and we can have a day off work. There might be a bereavement of a pet day or the bereavement of a friend day, which would be, that would be incredible, wouldn't it? It would, it would. But I wonder if the lobby would be stronger for death of a pet day than it would actually for death of a trend day. Because actually that seems like even death of a pet seems like something that people get behind more than understanding or having a culturally accepted and uh, yeah, policy reinforced idea about how important friends actually are. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, as a family therapist, you know, one of the things that um, we use relatively frequently is um, genograms, family trees. And, and um, you know, the number of times actually we'd have friends and pets written into those genograms. So we're mapping out who's important and in what ways and how do they impact whatever the problem is that people are bringing to therapy is, is absolutely enormous. Um, and the same in the therapy space, you know, family therapists are well used to people bringing in their, their treasured, usually dogs, not cats, but, you know, pets into the therapy room um, as being really important. And now that we're working from home as therapists, you know, actually being able to attend to, to pets in, in the therapeutic space, it has huge potential. And that's really important to people that are looking for that degree of comfort and safety and security that pets often uh, give. Um, but anyway, that's not so possible in, in therapeutic spaces with friends because of the impact of COVID and so on and not being able to have, certainly in the UK at the minute, friends into our houses. Um, anyway, we've digressed a bit from hierarchies of grief, but I think it's probably worth saying, you know, I'm, I'm in the UK, you're in Australia, um, and these are broadly similar kind of um, uh, cultural uh, areas and certainly white Australia, but thinking about Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders, um, people from other um, ethnic or racial backgrounds and what kind of cultural meanings and um, ideas that they bring into the idea about hierarchies of grief would be really different. And I'm by no means an expert on different cultural um, uh, responses to or, or ways of thinking about grief. But certainly it would be, this hierarchy idea would be massively disruptive when you start thinking beyond kind of dominant white colonial culture. And I, I should say, this is a podcast, nobody else can see me, but I'm, I'm white, British, Caucasian, middle-aged woman. Uh, and I think, you know, that's important that, that that's part of how we're thinking and talking about it, rather than just assuming that there is this one approach, one idea. And actually a lot of the, the grief work that's published is by white sort of northern hemisphere minority what we'd call minority world so you know white people are in the minority world it's just that we seem to gab on and have more power and so on than anybody else which is why we publish more yeah no, that's that's really interesting 
So what, what can people do or say to support someone after the death of, of their friend? Well, so I think that there's a lot of things. And I think for the death of a friend, it's really important that the death and the relationship is validated. So we know through this, this idea of hierarchy of grief and sort of disenfranchised grief, where it doesn't really count as much, that people can feel like their loss isn't valid. So I think just saying to people who've, who've had a friend die, yeah, that must be awful. And I'm really sorry about that. And, and say, goodness, you know, how are you feeling? What, what's that like for you? And I think, although that sounds really obvious, actually it doesn't always happen. <clears throat> and people do get into this kind of like, as, as bonkers as this sounds, I have heard this quite a lot, um, a response of, oh, well, at least it was only a friend and it was not as bad as when my spouse died and those kind of responses. And people really do give those. So, so, so yeah, validate, um, acknowledge their pain and their distress and give them the chance to kind of sit and talk about it. One, one of the things that I think goes across, um, across uh, situations, you know, whoever's died, I think asking about the person that's died, you know, using their name, bringing their name into conversation purposefully, mindfully, thoughtfully, um, uh, asking about anecdotes and stories and looking through photograph albums and inviting the opportunity to sit and reflect on, um, yeah, shared experiences or touching moments or difficult moments or whatever. So I think, you know, asking about all of that is, is a really important way of kind of honouring the, the memory and the bond between the friends. Um, and I think, you know, that there is that, um, that, that idea about, you know, ask them what they want from you as well. So you might assume that you know what they want, and maybe you don't. And, and maybe it is that they want, you know, more time spent just talking about them um, and less time something else. But ask them. They, they might well have an idea about what they want or what they help from. So how do rituals play a part in bereavement? Um, so just sort of thinking, what, what do we mean by rituals? And um, th those, again, will be really culturally specific. Um, when I think about rituals around bereavement, I think about the funeral service and the wake or the after party. Um, those kind of things. Um, I think, you know, and that they can be one-off like a wake, or they might be something that you return to. And I think depending on whether or not it's a one-off or something you return to maybe annually on their birthday or the anniversary of their death or something, it holds slightly different meanings and therefore what role they play in the bereavement. So I think often it, it's about remembering and bringing people together that um, remember the person and who are impacted by the loss. So that can be about kind of rebuilding those social bonds. So if you think about um, the death of a friend and maybe, you know, mutual friends get together and on the anniversary of the death, they all 
in their own homes or maybe together, they light a candle and they message each other about their memories and their sadness or their um, joyous remembering of daftness or whatever. So I think it's it, the, the rituals really help build and rebuild and cement those social bonds between the people that are still alive. But it can also play a really important role in, 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 in securing and continuing the bond with the person that's died. So um, there's this idea or theory um, called continu continuing bonds. And <clears throat> that's all about how is it that you continue to have a bond with somebody that actually is now dead. And, you know, I think back in the day, people used to think when people died, then maybe there was an afterlife in whatever spiritual religious framework you have, but, but really the person was gone um, from, from the here and now. Whereas continuing bonds has this, this counter idea <clears throat> that actually they're still around and that it's okay and adaptive and helpful to continue to have them as part of your life. So you know, having photographs where you say hello to them each day <laughs> and those kind of things. And that that can be a ritual that happens daily and just on your own, but maintains that kind of um, connection and attachment to the person that had died. So, you know, so attachment, yes, it might be symbolic. Um, it might help create a particular mood and, you know, to give permission the particular mood so I think you know the the sadness on the the anniversary of the day of the person's death um to give yourself permission to really to really enter into that sadness terrain um so I think rituals give permission for, for those kind of emotional responses and I think it normalizes grief like the the rituals yeah gives gives a kind of cultural and maybe specific uh you know specific time and place to say grief is normal and being sad that somebody's left your life because they've died is a normal and an okay part so I think rituals are really important that bottom line really important what are some of the long-term effects um, of not being able to grieve um well I mean I think that there's difficulty in kind of moving on with life. The, the last couple of years, we've seen this turn into a kind of psychiatric diagnosis around complicated grief, which has a very mm, specific set of medical criteria that you have to meet to be diagnosed with it. But really at the heart of it is this idea that actually, if you're not able to process the grief, um, you end up in a kind of maladaptive response where actually your life's still really negatively impacted. So maybe you're unable to continue on in your usual social roles or your employment. Um, you know, you avoid certain places or situations or people. You've got intrusive thoughts about maybe the person that died or maybe the, the way in which they died. Um, you can imagine that, you know, all deaths are not equal. Um, and that might be worth having a bit of a reflect of that, actually. You know, what does it mean to have a good death or a not good death? Um, and, you know, not being able to grieve might be tied in with the kind of death and those intrusive thoughts. So death by suicide, let's just name it. Um, or death by um, 
by accident. You know, these deaths that come really, for a lot of people, out of the blue um, can be really hard to process. And so, so those ideas about intrusive thoughts and finding it hard to adapt to life beyond the death of the person, um, those are the kind of key things that we think about in terms of long-term effects. So, you know, they might get labelled as anxiety or depression, um, but, but really it's that, it's the impingement on, on everyday functioning. So what are the best organisations for people to contact if they need someone to speak to about their grief? Yeah, so I think in, in most countries, there'd be organisations, um, peak body, third sector type organisations that support people living with bereavement issues. Um, so Beyond Blue in Australia, um, Samaritans, um, Cruise, those kind of organisations um, all provide services and support. There's also an, a global uh, a website that, that looks at um, providing resources and links to organisations across the world. And that's checkpointorg.com. And if people want to look that up, then actually wherever you are listening in the world or wherever you're listening and you know somebody else elsewhere in the world that's uh, living with the consequences of the, of the bereavement that they need support with, then checkpointorg.com actually might be quite a useful resource to tap into. Um, and, you know, most people aren't going to need sophisticated therapeutic intervention to manage bereavement. Um, people talk about a hierarchy, a, sorry, not hierarchy, I've got hierarchy on the brain now, um, thinking about a kind of triangle um, uh, type model where most people, if you're thinking triangle's got the pointy bit pointing up um, and the big flat base on the bottom, um, that most people fit in that big flat base area. Most people don't need high levels of support. You know, it's, it's enough to get the support of friends and family and acquaintances and so on. And they'll move through their bereavement fairly well and they, they'll not have any of these kind of complex bereavement outcomes. In that middle bit of the triangle, as you're pro progressing up towards the pointy bit, those are people that might need a little bit more. And so those kind of people might well need this kind of website type referral thinking about might be their um, support groups locally, that kind of thing, where they can tap into some, some additional levels of um, help and, and input. And then right at the pointy end of that is probably only like 10% of the population that are bereaved that actually need um, specialist counsellors or psychotherapists to, to support them. The data, I say about 5 or 10% because the data is all a bit different depending on who you ask and what date the study was done and that kind of stuff. So it's a bit variable, but but that's basically it. So, um, yeah, so that website might be helpful for some people. But that earlier advice, just speak to people, give them permission to talk about the person that's died, invite them to reflect on funny stories or, or touching stories. Um, and that that's enough for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's very good advice. Oh, well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Yeah, no worries. It's been very nice to chat with you. I've been speaking with Associate Professor Liz Corbat about the philosophy of grief, the death of a friend. And do stay tuned for 
Wing and Squai. <laughs>